Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. I wonder if there's been um, in your life something that you can point to that was a major turning point. Something that happened after which things were just never the same. Maybe it was a person that you met, uh, perhaps your spouse or just some significant person in your life. Maybe it was a job opportunity or an educational opportunity. Perhaps it was some kind of a crisis, maybe an accident of some sort or an illness. Maybe it was some kind of a paradigm shift where you just came to look at things in a new way. But whatever it was, it was something that made things so different that you look back on that and you realize that life has never been the same since that thing happened. It was a major turning point in your life. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, were the occasion for a major turning point in the life of a man named Martin Luther, who lived back in the 16th century. Luther was a monk, pastor, theologian, He came to read these two verses, and they were a major turning point in his life. His life was forever altered as a result of reading these verses. And as a result of his life being changed, the life of the church also changed. And as a result of the life of the church being changed, all of human history was changed because of these two verses. Of course, I'm referring to the Protestant Reformation that Luther led. These two verses were the occasion for that to happen. It's hard to overestimate how central, how important, how primary these two verses are that we're about to look at. Luther said that um, Romans, the book of Romans, is the chief part of the New Testament. And many commentators would look at these two verses and would say that these verses are the thesis statement for the book of Romans, that the entire book of Romans is just an explanation of what these two verses say. So hopefully you're getting the point here. This um, is a very important passage that we're about to read. And as we take a look at this and as we study it and open it up in the power of God's Spirit, who knows, maybe today will be a major turning point for you. Maybe your life will never be the same after hearing these verses. So if you have them, let's open our eyes and minds to these verses. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Very brief, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God, I do pray that you would change lives this morning as this word is proclaimed in the power of your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going through a sermon series here on the book of Romans. We started a few weeks ago, and uh, we're going to work our way one passage 
at a time through this very important New Testament book. And here in verse 16, you note that Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm thinking that one of the reasons that Paul said this is because he found himself at certain points probably tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel. And at some point in his ministry, he perhaps felt a little bit embarrassed about the gospel. Now, remember, Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Rome. Rome is a very sophisticated place. Rome is a center of intellectual activity. Rome is the place where all the sophisticated, important people want to go, at least visit, and maybe live. And here comes Paul with this gospel message that he wants to preach to this city. And you can imagine the experience that he's probably had as he's preached this crucified Messiah as the hope of the world. You can imagine Paul perhaps looking out at his audience and seeing so-and-so over here kind of chuckling and laughing, and so-and-so over here rolling his or her eyes, and maybe looking in the back and seeing some people just waving him off with their hands, and probably seeing a good number of people just turning and walking away. And witnessing all this, we can imagine how Paul might feel embarrassed, might feel ashamed. There is a great temptation for us today to feel the same thing. Because as I like to remind you, and you've heard me say many, many times, we are in a place in history and in our culture where Christianity and the gospel has been increasingly pushed to the margins And the culture is increasingly telling us that we have something to be ashamed about in what we believe. My question to you this morning as we get into this text is exactly this. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you embarrassed by the claims that we find in the scriptures about Jesus Christ? Are you slow to talk about it? Are you reluctant to identify as a Christian? because you want to maintain some kind of social standing. You don't want people to think that you're one of those backwards, narrow-minded, uneducated people who believe these crazy things about a resurrected Savior. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Paul, although tempted to be ashamed, was not ashamed. And he gives us three reasons very clearly in these couple of verses why he was not ashamed. And the first thing is this. I want to share this with you. Yeah, Robert George. This is a um, theologian, and he gave a speech at the uh, Catholic prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. last year. And um, his whole speech was on this question of being ashamed ashamed of the gospel. He says this, the question each of us today must face is this, am I ashamed of the gospel? And that question opens others. Am I prepared to pay the price that will be demanded if I refuse to be ashamed? If, in other words, I am prepared to give public witness to the massive politically incorrect truths of the gospel. So that sets us up here to look at this passage to see what Paul says. He's not ashamed of the gospel, and the first reason why he's not is because the gospel is the power of God. And we see this here in verse 16. This gets to what perhaps is kind of a modern temptation to be ashamed for the gospel. We'll talk about a postmodern reason to be ashamed of the gospel. But this is a temptation to be ashamed that has sprung up out of a modern mindset which says, how can we possibly believe 
in, for instance, a Savior being born to a virgin. We just recited the Nicene Creed, and we said that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We're talking about a miraculous birth. We're talking about a Savior who performed various miracles during His earthly ministry. We're talking about a Savior who was resurrected from the dead, one who was clinically dead and then was raised up to life. Those who think in a very modern, enlightened way say these things don't happen. People aren't born to virgins. Dead people don't rise up from the dead. There is no power in a humiliated, crucified, naked man hanging on a tree. That's ridiculous. That's foolishness. And in fact, we see that even Paul in his day noted this in 1 Corinthians 1. Jews demand demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom because in those things they think there is power. But we Christians do something different. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called to believers in Christ, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This gospel is the power of God. You see that in verse 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the gospel has the power of God, that the gospel kind of tends to bring along the power of God, or that the gospel leads to the power of God, or that the gospel is the occasion for something else to rise up and present itself as the power of God. No, the gospel itself is the power of God in all of its fullness. The idea of a God sending a Messiah into the world, born of a virgin, living under the law, going to a cross, shedding His blood, being resurrected from the dead, that's where the power of God resides for the salvation of sinners. There's a popular um, illustration that Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, 19th century, once used. He said, you know, if you have a lion in a cage, and the cage is shut, and someone comes and starts to taunt or attack or threaten that lion, what do you do? You open the cage. That's what you do. You let the lion out. You don't stand forward and try to defend that lion. That lion can defend himself just fine. Open the gate and let him out. And this is what Paul is saying here. This is the power of the gospel. It is Jesus crucified and risen. There just is this temptation in the church, in the church in particular, among many Christians, to think that that the power for salvation is found in something else, something that will come alongside the gospel. So sometimes we might think things like this. Wouldn't it be great if certain famous people became Christians? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Stephen Hawking became a Christian? I mean, it would be great if he became a Christian, but our thinking sometimes is, if someone like that became a Christian, wow, what power would be added to the gospel? Or whatever our favorite celebrity is or athlete, what if LeBron James became a Christian? I guess I don't know exactly that he's not a Christian. I haven't heard him make a profession of faith, but we think, what if an athlete like him became a Christian? Wouldn't so many people come to faith because of the credibility and how persuasive the gospel would be made by a figure like him. How about if Lady Gaga became a Christian? Well, what, what power would be contained in that? Wow, what an impact that would make on people. 
something we hear often in our culture, is this idea of being on the right side of history. We hear that a lot, as if this is something that we all really need. If you're on the wrong side of history, then you have nothing to say. But there is great power found in being on the right side of history. And Robert George, who I quoted just a moment ago, he goes on to address this, and and he says this. He says, history is not our God. God is God. History is not our judge. God is our judge. We're not going to give an account one day to almighty history. We're going to give an account one day to almighty God. And sometimes we feel ashamed of the gospel because we feel like maybe the views that we have are a little bit out of line with what everybody else seems to believe, and we want to be accepted, and we want to get in line with the mass of humanity, and so we want to claim that, yes, we are on the right side of history. Are you ready to claim the gospel, even if it's on the wrong side of history? Are you ready to take that shame? Another temptation that we often find in the church is just this temptation to reshape the gospel, to to kind of uh, shave off its rough edges, to represent it and repackage it in such a way that it won't be offensive to our world, to modern ears, to contemporary audiences. And this has happened over and over throughout the history of the church. In the early 1900s, it happened when actually in the Presbyterian church, there were many who came forward and said, look, we have got to make the gospel palatable to modern people, and so we've got to do away with the virgin birth. We have to do away with Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. We have to do away with resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead. We have to do away with miracles. And so they stopped requiring their pastors to subscribe to those particular beliefs, thinking that there would now be power in the gospel because we're getting rid of all of these embarrassing doctrines. And there was a guy named... Niebuhr, H. Richard Niebuhr, who said this, this is what it all led to, a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And you know what that equals? A gospel without power. A message that has nothing to offer anybody. Do you find yourself, friends, just wishing that we could just do away with this idea of an angry God, that we could do away with this idea of a resurrected Savior, if we could just do away with this virgin birth stuff? Oh, how much more willing would I be to talk about the gospel if I weren't so embarrassed about those things? Paul says the power of God is found in the fullness of the gospel as it is presented in the scriptures. So this is the first reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. There's power in that gospel. But there's a second reason why Paul is not ashamed, and that is this. It offers salvation to everyone. So look at verse 16 again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For salvation. What what is salvation? What does that mean? That means different things, I think, to different people. By salvation, the Bible means simply this, that uh, salvation in Christ is 
is having your sins forgiven, as we heard in our assurance of pardon. It's this idea that all of your transgressions and all of your rebellion against God can be washed away. It's this idea that you can be made right with God, put in a position where you can know that God accepts you and loves you, where you can know that at the end of your life, heaven awaits you and not hell, not eternal condemnation where you can know that death will not have the final word in your life, that although in this life one day you might die, Jesus is coming again and you will be raised up from the grave and you will live forever. This is what the gospel promises. This is salvation according to the Bible and according to Christianity, that the Holy Spirit comes and fills us and enables us now to live a different life so our hearts are now turned toward God so that we live for His glory and not our own. That's part of salvation. And that's what the Bible presents to us as the salvation message. Now, here is the postmodern reason for being ashamed of the gospel. In our current age, which some describe more as postmodern than modern, the concern might not be so much about virgin birth and resurrection. Today, the concern is this, the idea that there's only one way to enjoy the salvation that I just described that it is only through Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, that all of those benefits of salvation can be yours. There's not multiple ways to do this. All religions are not the same. That if you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not in Jesus, if you're not united to Him by faith, there is no salvation. Now, in this day and age, it's very easy, isn't it, to be kind of ashamed of that because we know how unpopular it is. We know how much resistance we're going to get if we talk that way. It just seems, doesn't it, so exclusive. It seems so narrow. And so we become ashamed. But let's look at what Paul actually says here. To whom is salvation offered? In verse 16, it is, that is the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That looks like a very inclusive and open statement to me. This is the power of God for salvation for anybody. Anybody. Man, woman, black, white, capitalist, socialist, Republican, Democrat, gay, straight, this gospel offer is for you. God here is not discriminating, saying, no, I don't want these kinds of people to be saved. I don't want those kinds of people to be saved. No, this is a gospel that's offered to everyone. The condition that Paul provides here is that you must believe. And notice how he goes on. He says, to those who believe, and he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is Paul's way of just kind of bringing home this point even more to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does he mean to the Jew first? Well, the Jews, the nation of Israel, particularly in the Old Testament, was always regarded to be God's people. God covenanted with the nation of Israel. He chose Jews to be the people of God in the Old Testament. It was from the nation of Israel that the Messiah came. God gave His law to Israel, to the Jews. So there's a sense in which the Jews have a kind of 
priority in God's redemptive plan. That's what Paul means here, to the Jews first. But he goes on and he says, but also to the Greek. And he just means by Greek, everybody who's not a Jew. He basically means Gentile there. That's how the NIV translates that at the end of verse 16. To the Jew and to the Gentile. This salvation, this gospel is offered to everyone, the Jew first, but also the Gentile. What's so remarkable about this is what Paul is saying here is that the Jews, even though they were God's people, they don't have um, an advantage in getting salvation from God because of who they've been historically. If they're going to be saved, they have to be saved in the exact same way as the Gentiles are saved, believing in Jesus Christ. That's the only way for anybody. It's not like the Jews get to be moved to the front seat or they get to kind of get placed in the front of the salvation line ahead of everybody else because they were part of God's people. No, they have to believe just like the Gentiles, just like anybody else. There's no exemption for them. And you know what, friends? There's no exemption for you either. I, I don't know if you think, well, I know, you know the, the people who are really messed up, they have to believe in Jesus. But, you know, I've done pretty well throughout my life, so I don't really have to do that. Those people, atheists, agnostics, who've never been in church, they need to believe in Jesus. But I've been in church all my life. I don't have to believe in Jesus. I'm good. No. You don't get an exemption. You too have to believe in Jesus. You've got to turn your life over to Him. You have to acknowledge Him as your Savior if you are going to be saved. I want to show as an example, it's kind of a, a humorous example, okay? Add a little levity. It's probably good to add a little levity here. Um, some of you know I've always been a fan of, of The Simpsons. Um, I think they're very funny stories, but you'd be surprised at how much theological content is packed into Simpsons episodes. Um, on the screen is Homer Simpson. And you might know something about Homer Simpson. Homer is a character that represents pretty much everything undesirable in a person. <laughs> I mean, he's lazy, he's a glutton. As you can see, he's eating a donut even in the picture. He's a horrible husband. He's insensitive. He has a problem with his temper, uncontrolled rage. He's abusive to his son. He's a heavy drinker. He sleeps on the job. He borrows things and doesn't return them. He steals. He's self-centered. He's just everything that we don't want to be. And what's interesting in the Simpsons episodes is there's someone who is a great contrast to Homer Simpson, Ned Flanders. So that's Ned on the screen. Ned Flanders is Homer's neighbor. And Ned Flanders is the exact opposite of Homer Simpson. He is absolutely meticulous in doing the right thing. He's down at the soup kitchen. He's always soup, uh, serving food to the poor. Um, he has satellite TV, but 230 channels are blocked out <laughs> to make sure that he doesn't see anything wrong. He wins tickets to a football game and wants to know the cash value of the ticket so he can declare it on his taxes just to make sure that he does everything right. Well, you know what? You put these two guys next to each other, 
if they were real men, if they were real people, the only way for either of them to be saved is to place faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that Ned Flanders is so meticulous about doing everything right and the fact that Homer Simpson is a complete undesirable person doesn't grant an advantage to Ned, doesn't grant a disadvantage to Homer, because both of them are in a position where if they would simply turn from themselves and trust in Jesus, they would be saved. Flanders has no advantage in all of his morality, in all of his religion, in all of his intense scrutiny of doing everything right. He has no advantage whatsoever over Homer Simpson when it comes to salvation, because there's one thing that's required believing in Jesus. That's how salvation comes to you and to me. The idea here is that there's just a, there's a, a huge openness and exclusiveness. I mean, we might say if Homer Simpson can be saved, anybody can be saved. And that's the idea. Salvation is offered to everyone. So one last point. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it provides righteousness for you. This is the last reason Paul finds here that where he's not ashamed. So we move to verse 17. And Paul says, In the righteousness, excuse me, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Revealed. Now, now, what is righteousness? Let's talk about this for just a moment because it's easy for us Christians to sometimes throw around these terms and not really define them and we don't really know what they even mean. Righteousness is um, a pretty broad term. There's really three components to it. Righteousness can refer to a divine attribute, first of all. That is God's integrity, His, his character, His holy nature as one who always does right. That's one way we can define righteousness. It's the way God is. We can also consider it as a divine activity. That is, it is something that God has done. God has made promises. He has covenanted with his people and has said that he would send a descendant of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That comes back all the way in Genesis chapter 3, and all of the Bible is just a record of God's faithfulness to do everything that He promised to do. Everything He said He would do, He has done. He has been faithful to carry out His redemptive goal in redeeming a people, and that is righteousness, a divine activity. <clears throat> but then thirdly, righteousness can be considered as a divine achievement, it's something that God has accomplished. And here's what He's accomplished. The thing that you and I need in order to enjoy salvation is to have a status before God where we also are regarded as being righteous. That's what's absolutely essential for you to be saved and for me to be saved. God's got to look at us not as evil, wicked people, as Habakkuk was talking about earlier, but as righteous people. And this is where the turning point for Luther occurred. This is what was such a mind-blowing paradigm shift for him. It was in his understanding here of verse 17. 
the righteousness of God. See, because when Luther was looking at that passage for most of his life, he saw the righteousness of God as some kind of standard that he had to achieve, that he had to reach in his own performance and all of his efforts. And so for a long time, Luther actually said, I hate the righteousness of God, because it just simply represented a standard that was far too high for him to achieve. But as he looked at verse 17, he began to see that what this actually means, for in it, the righteousness of God, that this righteousness is not a righteousness that God expects him to perform. It's a righteousness that God himself provides. And that that was why he just, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've missed this. This absolutely changed his life. The righteousness of God is not the the standard that God is holding over your head, waiting to see if you can reach it, this righteousness is a gift. Your status, friends, your acceptance before God is not based on what you do and give to God, but what God did and gives to you. Do you understand that? That, That's This is the thing I think that so many people miss in the gospel. We think of the gospel as forgiveness of sins, and that's what it is, and we're grateful for that. But that's half the gospel. The other half of it is the gift of righteousness. It's like most of us think of being a Christian as, you know, I used to be on death row, and then God pardoned me and brought me off of death row. And that's the gospel. And that is a big part of the gospel and a wonderful part of the gospel, but it's more than that. It's as if God said, I'm taking you off of death row, I'm pardoning you and forgiving you of your offenses, and oh yeah, I'm also going to do this. Kneel down, bend over, and let me hang around your neck the Congressional Medal of Honor. Except there's something even better that we're getting than the Congressional Medal of Honor we're receiving through faith the righteousness of God. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians 3. He says, I want to be found in Him, that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, not some righteousness I've achieved in all of my obedience and meticulous efforts, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Luther came to understand that, here's what he said. I felt as if I were entirely born again and entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Friends, if if you're just weary, you're just worn out trying to please God, trying to do this and that to get Him to accept you and to love you, You're just morally worn out, and you're just about to give up. I cannot do this. I cannot live this Christian life. I cannot keep up with all these other people. I can't follow all these rules. You just feel like you're on a treadmill. You need to rest in this glorious doctrine, the righteousness of God provided to you. If you have received Christ, you are righteous in his sight. He looks at you as if you have done everything that Jesus Christ himself have done. All the righteousness that we've talked about, the divine 
um, attribute, the divine activity, and the divine achievement is accredited to you, given to you through faith. Not because you've done it, because Jesus did it for you. And now it's given to you through faith. This is the challenge that we all have. This is my challenge as a Christian and as a pastor, to actually believe that this is true. To wake up in the morning and to tell myself, the righteousness of God is mine through faith. And although throughout the rest of this day I might do a lot of dumb things and I might be more like Homer Simpson than Ned Flanders, I am righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ given to me. That is a message that you have to preach to yourself, talk to yourself about, and convince yourself to believe. Because if you're a Christian, it is true. And this is something that we struggle with all our lives, and that's how Paul finishes this passage. He says, it's the righteousness of God that's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there he's quoting Habakkuk, our Old Testament reading from a moment ago. This righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And I think what that means simply is that this righteousness of God that we have is, is by faith from start to finish. You know, it's not like you start by faith and then as you kind of get more mature in your Christian life, you don't need it so much anymore. You always need it. It's always by faith. It's this faith that is just as necessary for a pastor as it is for a layman. There's no difference among the body of Christ. Everybody has to exercise this faith. Whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, you have to exercise this faith. This righteousness is given from faith to faith. So the righteous shall live our entire lives by faith, hope, and trust in what Romans 1, 16 and 17 is telling us about the righteousness that is provided for us. This is a glorious message, friends. This is, this is good. I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward as I close here. I just want to ask you one more time. Friends, are you ashamed of this gospel? Really? Are you ashamed of this gospel that is the power of God? This gospel that is offered to everyone? This gospel that gives to you the righteousness that you need and can never achieve on your own and that is offered freely? If you are, just be encouraged by this. Jesus carried your shame to the cross too. He bore your embarrassment on the cross and has promised that everyone who believes in him will never be ashamed. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your goodness and grace you have given to us all that we need. Thank you for your righteousness. Fill our hearts with joy as we sing in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.